The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop converting that AS400 into a refrigerator and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 397 with guest Michael Feathers, recorded live Monday, November 24, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD DNR TV style order your copy now at www.franklins.net support is also provided by Telerik combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first class customer service online at www.telerik.com and by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who likes a good Danish, and we'll just leave it at that, Carl Franklin. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin in New London, Connecticut here, and Richard Campbell in Vancouver. Again, hey, sir. One more time. It's good to be home, huh? One more time behind the mic. Yes, it is. We had some fun on the road, as you heard from some of those shows that we did, and we have a lot more coming up, especially at Ordev. We got like five or six shows. Yeah, no, it was a monster week of just recording, recording, recording. Yep. And uh, man, I love Scandinavia. My first time. We had a yeah. It was just a ton of fun. Some time in Copenhagen, some kind in Malmo. Uh, lots of thanks to the Ordev folks. They were awesome hosts. Beautiful cities, Copenhagen and Malmo. And uh, you're kind of fun to hang around with there, Mr. Franklin. Yeah, true. And, you know, we also uh, hung out with Glenn Block quite a bit and uh, Tim Hewer. Yeah. We were like the, the four amigos <laughs> over there at Ordev. Off getting in trouble. All right, let's get right into Better Know Framework. And, All right, it's been a while. Yeah, and Better Know Framework, of course, is where I shine a little light on a far corner, uh, just a little piece of the .NET framework, and the hope is, over time, all these things might come together to make you actually a smarter programmer. Today, we're going to talk about the system.iConvertible interface, huh. and iConvertible defines methods that convert the value of the implementing reference or value type to a common language runtime type that has an equivalent value. So, let's say you have an object that, has, that exposes some data. And you want to use the convert class on it to get, uh, you know, a two boolean, two double, two byte, two char, two date time, 
to int 16, all of those, it implements all of these things. And then you can either uh, give an equivalent value in that particular CLS type, or you can throw a uh, an exception. You can throw an invalid cast exception. So it's just a nice little interface that you can use in that situation. Well, and it sounds like it's the right way to be dragging data into CLR types. Exactly. So there you go. iConvertible. Know it, love it, learn it. Richard, you have an email for us. It's been a long time since we read an email. While we've been on the road, we've been getting emails the whole time. Right. So actually, I have a huge pile of email, but I, I just wanted to grab one. And it's actually in reference to the show we did number 388 with uh, Uncle Bob. Uncle Bob, Bob Martin. Hey, and we did another one with him at uh, Ordev. And we did, which was a pretty silly show, actually. It was kind of silly. We were all a little punchy by the end of the day on Friday. I thought it was a good show. Uh, we had a lot of fun. Uh, here we go. Hello, I was listening to your show with Bob Martin, and I have to say that I respectfully disagree with the idea that you should decouple only for the functionality you have. I was working on an application that does a lot of socket communications. Although it uses many different versions of an internal protocol, it only used sockets for transmitting of this protocol. Hmm. The socket logic was ingrained into the business logic of the application. One day, we got a request from a new customer to communicate using a third-party message queuing application instead of sockets, and the remark of refactoring was incredible. Huh. We wound up hacking our way through to get the project done, but it was a cold reminder that anticipating potential new functionality and designing for it from the beginning is fundamental to decreasing development time for new features. When mm. Bob talks about seeing and working on code that's hacked together, I think it is more of an example of poor initial design and under-engineering rather than over-engineering. Hmm. Had our communication logic been loosely coupled, it would have been very simple to add another type of communications to our project without affecting any other functionality. We would have been finished and paid a lot faster. Did he say that software shouldn't be loosely coupled? No, he didn't say that, but he said that, it, they, I mean, what Bob was talking about was that we tend to anticipate too many needs right. and add a lot of extra plumbing in that, that never gets used. And that's sort of getting back to that agile principle, yes. Yagni, you ain't going to need it. Yeah. And uh, this is uh, from Bogdan uh, Varlamov uh, from North Carolina. And obviously, Bogdan got burned the other way. Mm -hmm. They didn't do that stuff and then suddenly had a customer that wanted something that didn't fit easily into it and ended up doing a ton of work for it. Yeah. It's, it's a tough debate. Uh, not hard, not easy to choose either way, whether, uh, you know, I think we over-engineer as well as under-engineer. Interesting. So, and that goes to my question of, is there such a thing as too much granularity? which uh, I believe we talked about on another show. Absolutely. Yeah, good, so good Bogdan, stuff. So, Bogdan, hey, thanks for your email. Uh, and for everyone out there, feel free to send us a message, .NET rocks at franklins.net. Hey, did, Richard, did you see in Dubai they had an opening ceremony for some crazy hotel that was like 24 times more fireworks than the Chinese Olympics opening ceremony? Yeah, in the middle of an economic downturn, somebody dropped $20 million. Million dollars. Million dollars million. on a party. That's crazy. That I was not invited to. Well, let me just tell you, the money is in Dubai. So if you want to chase it, send me an email, carl at franklins.net, and I will hook you up with the guys at Infusion Development who are looking for hot.net developers to go to Dubai and uh, work on some really cool stuff. And from what I hear, the money's pretty good. And we'll leave it at that. Our uh, guest today is Michael Feathers, and he's a consultant at Object Mentor and the author of the Prentice Hall book, Working Effectively with Legacy Code. 
Michael also wrote CPP Unit, the initial C++ port of the JUnit testing framework. A programmer and consultant for 20 years, Michael has worked in biomedical, e-commerce, and a variety of other domains. He continues to speak at various conferences and visits teams around the world to help them get their code under test. When he isn't engaged with the team, he spends most of his time investigating ways of altering design over time in code bases. Welcome, Michael. Yeah, thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, well, good to have you. We've been talking quite a bit uh, on the show about all of these things that you're you're touching on. Testing, of course, is a big topic. Um, uh, just legacy code. We did a show on, I guess you would call them brownfield applications. Yeah. You know, inheriting. Uh, it's not not the the most fun position to be in as a developer. <laughs> I guess. You agree? Yeah, well, it's more and more common these days. It seems. Sure you know, is. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember back when I was in school, I was you know taking courses and working on neat things like compilers and all these other things. And I get out in the industry, and I'm like, ah, you know, it's like, what do I do now? And you discover you're surrounded by this big, you know, hulking mess that you have to kind of maintain for a while. How yeah, legacy are we talking about here? Is this like old DBase apps or, or mainframe well, apps or AS400? I'm kind, of, I'm kind of lucky that I never really worked on the mainframe. <laughs> or um, yeah, I never really did much, you know, with COBOL or with uh, Fortran, in a sense. Um, not that there's anything really wrong with that. Um, but my, my experience pretty much starts with C. And, um, you know, I wrote this book about the topic uh, about four years ago. And um, I kind of reached back into, you know, uh, that stuff and um, uh, just, you know, talked about the experiences I had working with teams trying to go and help them get tests around existing code just to make change a lot easier than it is for them currently. So I haven't really gone way back to the mainframe yet. But still, I mean, you are talking then pre-object languages? No, not necessarily. Um, I have this definition of legacy that I use in the book, which is a little contentious. Okay. Um, my point of view is that legacy code is basically code without tests. Ah, oh, all right. Okay. Sure. Yeah, and it's a kind of an odd point to take, but you know, the thing is, it's kind of like you know, uh, test-driven development made a very big um, impact on me uh, when I first heard about it in the late 1990s and tried it out, and um, I began to notice just how easy it is to change code that has a lot of tests surrounding it, and um, you know, you you can definitely see the difference in teams. I mean, some teams that come in in the morning they just look like they'd want to be anyplace else other than work because they just know that they're going to have to go and deal with this chaos and just have to go and sort of try to find some thread through this large code base and understand it well enough in order to go and make changes. And then on the other hand, you have teams that have basically done a lot with TDD, and they walk in and they basically have a strong sense that they can understand their code and also that um, if there's something they don't understand, they can write additional tests, and if they make some mistake, they've got a safety net for themselves. Yeah. So a lot of my emphasis has been on trying to go and get that experience back in existing code bases. It, it almost is as if wrapping everything in tests means that, it, that you have that old greenfield experience of every bit of new code is safe. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, it's Safer. never really complete, though. You know, that's the thing that's kind of odd about this. It's like you can spend years and years trying to get tests, you know, in place around some large existing app. You know, uh, code base has been around for, you know, 10, 15 years. There's no way you're going to get tests around everything. Um, but at least to be able to go and start to piece things together and get tests around the areas that you're about to make changes to, um, it provides, um, you know, what heck of a you know, a strong basis for what you want to uh, do going forward. Before you can test, you really need to refactor, don't you? I mean, that's yeah, usually that's a the bit first. of an odd thing. You know, it's, um, I remember uh, I started writing my book a bit after Martin Fowler wrote his refactoring book in 1999. And um, you know, one of the things that he makes is a very strong point is that you do need tests in order to be able to refactor. 
yeah, but, but once you start to try to get tests in place around existing code, exactly, uh, you discover very quickly that you need to go and do a little bit of refactoring to get tests in place. Sure. I mean, especially if you're talking the kind of legacy code that I've had to deal with, which is, you know, big, great big subroutines and functions and, you know, yeah. the, the whole idea of granularity isn't... The do-everything routine. Yeah. Exactly. The <laughs> <laughs> do-everything. Yeah, it's very tough to deal with. But the, um, you know, the, the general idea is that there are certain things you can do that are very conservative that allow you to go and have some confidence as you do those refactorings that you aren't breaking things and just do... Enough of refactoring just to go and basically get tests in place to go and basically do more aggressive refactoring. So, typically help teams out with so that. So what are these sort of wow, basic things we're talking about? Is this just like breaking down functions into smaller bytes? Uh, yeah, there's that. The uh, thing about it, though, is it really depends on which language you're working in when you deal with the large function problem. Um, you know, we're kind of lucky now that in Java and C Sharp we have some decent refactoring tools. And quite often you can basically do things like extracting methods without having to do much in the way of testing. The tools are that good. Um, in some older languages like C++ and C, um, it's harder to do that and have confidence in those, uh, those extractions. And what you typically try to do is write tests up above that large function in order to go and um, have enough confidence to go and, you know, see that you can refactor a bit of it and see that things are still working. Yeah, this, is all, this really is all a confidence game because often this legacy code is stuff you didn't write in the first place. You don't know how it works. Yeah. Exactly. And for me, as a consultant coming in, it's kind of, it's doubly, you know, uh, double anxiety in a sense, because, you know, you're looking at stuff and you don't know anything about its history. And some changes that people there uh, would feel much more comfortable in than you, um, you just wouldn't really consider yourself without, you know, having somebody there to guide you. Well, and isn't there a whole business case game here with legacy apps where, like, how much of this stuff just not applicable anymore? I can't tell you how many times when I've talked to people about, well, what about this function? Oh, yeah, we don't use that feature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's a very strange thing with that because yeah, I think people have discovered, you know, it's been kind of like a long realization coming that it's really hard to replace existing applications. You know, I mean... It really is. Back when I first yeah, started in the industry, it just seemed like there was um, this mania for going and rewriting things. And um, now it's kind of like, well, we have all this code and we have this considerable investment in it. And um, then the question becomes, you know, can we actually replace some of this stuff? And Quite often, teams run into the situation where they'd love to replace things, but they're not even certain that they understand it well enough to be able to do that with confidence. And um, so then it becomes kind of like this game of incremental replacement. And um, yeah, it gets kind of tough. Well, and you mentioned this in your bio, too, this idea of gradually changing design, which I, I sounds almost impossible. I think most folks look at, we have a new design and we jump to it. Yeah, and it's a real change in mindset also. I think it's very easy for us to try to imagine some pristine castle, which is kind of nicer than where we are now, right? Um, it's easy to go and sort of cast your imagination and say, you know, it's like I can imagine this, this much better thing than what I'm, than what I'm dealing in now. But um, in general, what is important is to be able to go and just try to imagine something which is a bit better than what you have currently. And if you can target those things, then over time, you're really able to go and start to make a difference in the code base. So is, um, is, your, is your book and in, in what you talk about sort of like a lifeline to somebody who's faced with uh, a legacy application and doesn't know where to start? Like, do you, what I'm saying is, do you have a framework, like a number of steps to scientifically go through a process? Uh, not necessarily. It was really kind of an odd thing in writing the book because I really wanted to go and make it I had a lot of theory I wanted to go and kind of get across, you know, things that kind of I had abstracted away from the experiences I'd had with teams. But um, I ended up kind of adopting kind of like a, an FAQ format. Um, 
you know, it, it's really structured in a way that you say, look, you know, I, I have this particular problem, and you should basically find a chapter that goes and describes that problem and tells you how to go and get past it. And for the most part, it's about uh, doing the dependency breaking that's necessary to go and get tests in place. Yeah. Um, not quite so much about the bigger design issues. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's just really, I guess, a way to give people confidence to get started on some of these things. Because that is, you know, if you can get past day one, you're making progress. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the apps that I've had to, well, I, I'm thinking of one in particular that I was faced with, which was an app that was written in Access and was all flat, used flat, a flat data model. Yeah. And they wanted to put it on the web. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> good luck with that. Right. You know, the whole application was, right? yeah, the whole application was predicated on the fact that this data is flat, and mm-hmm. he extended the whole SQL query model to the end user, which is a bad idea in general. Yeah. And then, of course, it was all about having direct access to the tables. So if you put just did a port for that to the web, just a port, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're asking for trouble. Yeah. And this, I guess a lot of it really, it comes down to basically making the decision about when do you actually have to rewrite pieces. Right. You know, and, and actually testing can help you quite a bit in just really helping you discover what you've really got, you know, because it's uh, quite often hard to go and figure that out. So especially when we're dealing with a legacy app like this, how do we apply a test harness to it? I mean, And I'm thinking about an app that maybe isn't living in Visual Studio, you know, that yeah. we, we don't have that code-based option. Like, I'm just wondering how we actually get test attached to it. Um, it really comes down to figuring out what you need to change. And at the moment that you figure out what you need to change, you have to figure out some some place up above that change where you're able to can be where you're going to be able to sense the effects of your change. And um, at that point, you have to go and start breaking dependencies, and um, then you just try to write tests at that level. Yeah. And, um, in general, I recommend using you know various unit testing frameworks to go and do this sort of thing. Right. Sure. Uh, Wire up your tests around what's already there. You're obviously yeah. not going to do tests first because <laughs> it's already written. But what? Uh, so so you said that you have to do a certain amount of conservative refactoring first. Yeah. And I'm wondering how much. I mean, isn't the there's a real I don't know what you kind of say. Most people would feel an urge to just refactor the hell out of it the first time. Yeah, because because there's so much of it that's going to change. But you're you're a fan of just getting as much refactoring done as needs to happen so that you can run a, a test framework around it, wire up the tests, and then change things. It doesn't sound very satisfying, does it? It doesn't. Yeah, I know. That's okay. what I'm saying. Well, so here's here's what you do. Okay, if you have some big existing code base, one thing you can do is just basically you know take it, pull it out of version control, and um, just refactor the hell out of it. Yeah. Okay? But just don't check it in again. Sure. <laughs> and I call that scratch refactoring. It's really a, a great way of going and starting to discover what you've really got and um, try to figure out what direction you might want to go and take things to. So, you know, for a team, if they've got this big, horrible application, to go and just take, you know, an afternoon or a couple of hours and just, you know, uh, cut, copy, and paste, move things around, rename them, and not be terribly diligent about, you know, uh, making sure they aren't introducing, you know, errors, um, but just do enough to go and get a sense of like, oh, wow, this is what I see behind what we've got here. And, um, you know, then you at least yeah. know that you've got some kind of direction you can move towards. And it's going to take a long time to get there. Yeah. Um, and maybe getting there isn't really the right metaphor. Sure. But you know you can make things better in a particular direction. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it makes sense now that you're saying it. You just have to make sure you fight that urge. But to... that is definitely a throwaway in the end, likely. Definitely. It Absolutely. Is. You would never want to check that back in again. It, you know, this is really about mitigating fear. I can go smash this thing up for a while and at least get yeah. a sense for what's going to happen. 
And then I can go back and try it again. Yeah. No, it, 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 definitely it is. And it's one of those things that just doesn't really occur to people all that often to go and just sort of do you know, all sorts of you know, crazy wonton refactoring and just try things out. Because people are just so used to the, you know, the, the idea that they're going to check it back in again. And um, that's, uh, you know, this scratch refactoring is a great way of going and just you know, getting that idea, getting those ideas. But this is also the same sense we get from testing great test harnesses in general is this fearlessness. I can go and mang around in the code and it's going to point out to me where I made mistakes. Yeah, definitely. And, I, you know, that's one thing I just really wish that we could, you know, get to in the industry. And it's, it's great now. TDD is, you know, getting higher penetration costs across the industry. And um, even places that aren't doing TDD, they're talking an awful lot more about testing. They're doing it a lot more with regard to testing. And um, I know it, it's nice. It's a great, great improvement over what we've had in the past. So, of course, once again, this whole legacy code question mark comes in, which is what's really legacy? And even if we do have a modern app, modern language anyway, yeah. working in our existing environment... It's legacy just because it doesn't have a test harness around it. So it sounds to me like you de-legacy it once you put that test harness on it. Yeah, we pretty much make the commitment to go and move forward to having tests. And it's, it's really a, a hard proposition for many people that haven't had that experience of working in a code base that has that safety net. Um, but it's, uh, I basically chose that definition of legacy to be a bit provocative. Um, I think it's a distinction which is so important right now that people need to really start to move towards it. So as you're as you're going through this legacy code and updating it and making changes, are there yeah. tools, languages, frameworks uh, that you recommend people look into as possible, um, you know, solutions to help to help you along the way? Um, well, there's the test harnesses themselves. Not much more to say about them. Sure. Um, you know, I like Lint-based tools and things like PMD and. You said uh, Lint. Lint. Yeah, just a yeah, old terminology from C and C plus plus. A tool to go and basically find basically like jacking up your warning level, you know, very high. Is it an acronym, Lint? I don't think so. I think it's just um, named after like a laundry lint. Right? Oh, okay. You'll find the little puffs that are kind of odd on your code mm-hmm. and do something about them. I had never heard that. Yeah, before. yeah. Um, but uh, you know, coverage tools are nice, um, and uh, yeah, just. Anything which can go and give you a bit more information about your code. You know, the thing is that for the most part, there's just so much that you learn by uh, just sitting down with a testing harness and trying to write tests for things. Right. Um, and beyond that, also, if you have tools which can go and basically do a bit of basic diagramming of the code base that you have, that's great. Quite often, though, I just kind of fall back on um, you know paper and pencil. You know, let's go ahead and hunt through a piece of code and figure out what's connected to what and understand you know how things are pieced together now and where we, where we might want to go and take them over time. Right. Right. So, uh, what about functional languages? Are you a fan? Uh, yeah, I am. Um, seems like there's an awful lot of interest in them now. Um, I was at a conference, uh, JAO in Australia last year, or earlier this year, mm-hmm. and ran into Eric Meyer and um, uh, started asking him all these questions about Haskell that I'd kind of uh, you know, saved up in a sense. I'd been kind of playing with it on and off for the past six months or so, and um, it really struck me that. You know, from if you look at these things from the point of view of testing, there's an awful lot that functional programming has that tends to kind of get us away from some of the issues that become so problematic in testing. Such as? Um, well, one of the hardest things to deal with in testing is just um, you have some basically rather complex piece of code, and it has all sorts of crazy side effects. You don't even know where they are. And if you're working in a functional programming language, which um, you know, has some level of purity, okay, which basically... Uh, uh, tries to reduce the amount of um, side effects, uh, then there's probably less to track down. 
Um, another thing that's kind of nice about Haskell as well is the um, uh, the notion that basically I/O is kind of sequestered off into its own place with the monad. Yeah. And um, that's really kind of nice because many applications I visit, or excuse me, teams you know that I visit that have really odd applications, you have no idea where you know access to external systems is happening. It's just scattered all throughout the application, and um, you know it's just more. You have to dig through in order to go and understand how some piece works. You don't know what it's really connected to. Um, so if some of these um, accesses to external you know, bits of the world can be kind of sequestered in some area of your program, I think it's a, a nice step forward, not only for engineering, but also for testability. I'm just thinking that those are, are points of failure, right? They're where you're going to have trouble in your app. Uh, those yeah. are external points. Yeah. And it's just nice to know that it's all, relative, all kind of relatively in one place, in a way. Absolutely. So, very handy thing. I have. mean, how into you the functional language space are you? Thinking about F sharp? Like, is this really going to be uh, just another general purpose language to use? I, I'm not sure. I know Microsoft is using F sharp internally, from what I've heard. Um, and I am frequently in contact with people that are playing around with it and doing some things. Um, it's interesting to see what's happening in the .NET space that so many of these features that are you know, can, kind of considered you know, mainstay in functional programming are kind of migrating them ways, their way back into C sharp. Um, which is nice and everything. The only thing that kind of gets me a bit is I feel sometimes like um, C-sharp is getting to be a bit too big in a way. You know, it seems like every time you turn around, something new is being added to the language. and um, It's okay. I mean, it's nice to have new features that people can use and everything, but it's still... Mm-hmm. Um, I would hate to see it get into the space where C++ is, where basically uh, there's just so much there that to have somebody walk in and try to maintain a piece of code that was developed five or six years ago um, incurs a, a tremendous amount of uh, uh, need for learning. Do you think C-sharp and F-sharp could live happily side-by-side side in a project, different assemblies? Uh, I, I'm not really sure. I, I suppose they could. You know, it's, it's nice that you know, .NET is um, oriented the way that it is, that it allows the interoperability um, nicely. Yeah, uh, But I sure. haven't really seen. I'm not quite sure. I just don't get the sense that developers actually want to do that, that they, they'd like to have their app more or less in one language, at least the code they need to maintain. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a strange thing. I think we're really in this odd place in the industry right now. It's almost like a Tower of Babel in a sense. You know, it seems like um, we had this real monoculture in the industry for a while with, um, with Java and with Visual Basic, and uh, right. you know, now it's, we're at the point where basically everybody and their brothers is designing a new language and putting it out there. Yeah, for, for better or worse, but is, isn't that really the, the sense we got? I think we were talking to Ted Neward about this, that, that object oriented languages hit the wall. That's as far as they were going to go. And now we're looking around for other solutions. I think there's something to that. Um, it's interesting though, because I think that some of that really has to do with the type systems also. Um, there's this very strange thing that happens with object oriented languages where if you have subtype polymorphism, you know, it's good. If you add parametric polymorphism, like generics, then you have this strange cruft that kind of occurs at the intersection of those two pieces. Maybe we should take a step back and define those for our listeners again. Sure, in a sure. More detail. Okay. Um, most you know, object-oriented languages have inheritance, and that's just one form of polymorphism. It's um, sure. a way of allowing you to go and substitute one thing for another. And um, there's been this tendency within the language design community to go and basically add uh, features to make it easier to go and have type-safe collections. So things like the generics that we have with um, C Sharp and uh, C++, we have templates, and in Java, we have generics also. Mm. And um, it seems like those two forms of inheritance, they mix, but they mix in odd ways and kind of force you to deal with a bit more complexity than 
you'd like to sometimes as a programmer. And um, I don't know, people haven't really talked about this all that much, but I, I see this in C Sharp, I see it in Java, and I see it in C++. They also make it much easier to do lots of things. True, generics, true. Although it's a little more complex to grok, but I find it's, it makes things so much easier. What was the term that you used for the type of polymorphism that generics represents? Uh, parametric polymorphism. Parametric polymorphism. Yeah. And what's the idea behind that term? Parametric. Um, well, if you think of the word parameter, just to parameterize. And that's, oh, okay. that's the notion is that you parameterize types in order to go and generate new types. You know why, why that threw me is because I, the only other... The only other time I think of something that's parametric is an equalizer. Oh, okay. <laughs> you have a selectable <laughs> range uh, yeah, a of frequencies. Yeah, a that. Sorry. But, no, no problem. But um, it's interesting with dynamically typed languages, you know, you really aren't, you don't have the type system going and guiding your hand in two different directions, in a way. Um, so basically programming in a functional style in a dynamically typed language and Mixing with, you know, straight OO isn't quite as odd in a way. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik who bring you this special message. What's more important for your web applications? High performance on the server or on the client? How about footprint, number of server requests? There are so many potential bottlenecks that can drag your application performance, and of course, there is no universal solution for them. The good news is the guys from Telerik understand the complexity of that problem. When building their UI components, they isolate every probable source of performance loss. Then they apply a respective solution for different products, different scenarios, and even different browsers. The techniques vary dramatically. As a result, you, the developer, receive out-of-the-box, highly reliable components that are optimized in every aspect of their behavior. I'm sure you'll be interested to learn more about the various performance-boosting techniques for web applications. Just go to Telerik.com slash top performance for details and live demos. Now, aren't these two separate things, really? We're seeing dynamic languages with their very loose typing, very separate from functional languages? Or are there strongly typed and, loose, and, and loosely typed functional languages as well? Um. Yeah, it's funny. The ones that gain more press are really the strongly typed functional programming right. languages, but Scheme is loosely typed and functional. And um, I believe uh, that Erlang is. I'm not exactly certain about that. But um, there is so many. It's like the Scala, OCaml, Erlang. Like there's so many functional languages all of a sudden. Yeah, there are. <laughs> and they're all trying something slightly different. Yeah, it seems. There, there's two dominant themes, though, or a couple of dominant themes. One is um, uh, type inference, which we're seeing in C Sharp now. Um, and the other is um, uh, laziness, you know, the ability to go and basically create uh, odd data structures and basically go ahead to ch and choose to um, kind of like put limitations on them after the fact. Right. And, uh, 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 yeah. and really it's sort of a stuff. performance opportunity there. Rather than, than populate everything, just let it run for a while before you figure it, and limit itself by execution. Yeah. It's, it's just an interesting way of thinking about the problem. It's so different from what we've been taught. Yeah, I, I definitely recommend um, that people, if they have a chance, uh, try to, you know, learn Haskell. It's a very, uh, it really throws your mind in some very strange directions. We did a couple of DNR TVs, or at least one with Venkat Subramaniam on Haskell, just to, to get our, it's a good language to get your mind around functional programming. Definitely. I just wonder, you know, this comes back to that whole legacy question of are these are object-oriented apps headed to being legacy apps at some point just because they, they're not stuff people are going to work on anymore? 
Well, it seems to be the the fate of everything in a way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just you know progress happens, and so the things that were hot, you know, the technology sector at one point become less hot at another point. And I and I also buy into your notion that C sharp is becoming this grab bag that every interesting feature that comes along in any language, C-sharp has some implementation of. Yeah, yeah, and it's something that I think that, you know, the community is going to have to deal with at some point in time. I mean, there's a lot to be said for, you know, very minimal languages. But. Right. Yeah, I think C-sharp is definitely the opposite of a minimal language. <laughs> definitely. Uh, so you really think that C-sharp's getting too, uh, all, uh, you know, a Swiss Army knifey on us? I think so. I don't know. Is it, is it hard? It seems like it's kind of hard to argue against that. Uh, it's hard to argue against that. I'm just wondering if that's necessarily a bad thing. It may not be. I don't know. It's just one of those things. I mean, the language you know, continue to grow in market share, and people will find the things that they want to yeah. find in it. Um, but you just get back to that same, that same issue. At a certain point, um, people that are new to the programming industry, they have to go and basically start from ground zero and learn the language. Mm. And um, that just gets pretty tough after a while. It does start, it's feeling like the barrier to entry for developers is getting higher. It seems like that, too. Yeah, to me. Yeah, it's a strange thing in the industry now. It seems like we're kind of um, kind of uh, revisiting a lot of old stuff in a way, which is kind of yeah. neat. I mean, it is cool. Yeah, I don't, like, I don't see that as a bad thing. I think it, it, there is that sort of inflection point of, okay, we, we did sort of hit a point with objects with these managed frameworks. We're like, well, okay, that's as good as that's going to get. Yeah. And yet I'm still not happy. You know? No, it's great. And I, I think that, you know, the nice thing is that many of these things were really settled a long time ago. Not really settled, but basically people, you know, came across some very interesting ideas a long time ago in the functional programming community and we're just kind of just resurrecting these things at this point. Right. They were, they were living in the periphery for years and years yeah. and years and now they've suddenly gotten new interests. Yeah, it seems like the, you know, the history of the next 30 years will be mining the last 30 years in a sense. Yeah. yeah. And I just wonder if the last, the previous 30 years was very much mining the 30 before that. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I can't, I don't remember. I'm not that old. Yeah, no, me either. Um, do you, I don't know how hip you are to functional programming. We can go away from this if you want, but where do you feel that the, the aspect of functional programming and parallel programming tie together? Hmm. Well, no, it's, it's a very interesting thing about that, you know, and I think other people have mentioned this enough times also, but the, um, the whole notion that if you're trying to minimize state and minimize state transition, um, it becomes much easier to share data structures across different threads. Right. And uh, so it becomes much easier to go and take a look at a problem and say, okay, well, I throw this bit to this processor, I throw this bit to this processor, and uh, and move on in a good way. Um, the thing that's just so awkward about this is that this is a very different way of thinking about programming, functional. And um, you, uh, you know, it, it took me a while to kind of grasp certain things. And um, I remember telling friends when I was learning a bit of Pascal, I said, you know, this is great. The only thing is you just have to learn how to think like a Martian. And <laughs> a Martian, everything's okay. So um, we're, so much of what we're used to in programming is about, you know, basically mutating state. And to move away from that is uh, a bit of a, a chore. Yeah, it's a very different way of being very respectful of state. I, I would argue that uh, us web guys have mm -hmm. been doing that for a long time because state has been yeah. such a pain for us. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways we're well equipped for that, that we think about these very transitory things and great independence between execution cycles because we... We're so gentle with our state. It, the size of it matters. How often you touch it matters. You know that yeah. all of that m matters so much more in the web world. Yeah, I think so. I, I think it helps you develop the proper intuitions for it. 
it's the beginning. I'm I, I just wondering if that's a species of developer that's going to do well in this new, you know, immutable world. Yeah, it might be. It might be the case. Um, uh, I was poking through your blog a while back and ran across, you know, I know you're a testing guy and a big fan about testing. And then there was yeah, that discussion about the flaw in unit testing. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I wonder um, if you, I think the listener would really probably appreciate this sort of insight into how testing sort of got here. Yeah, okay, sure. The, um, let's see, the, the thing I was trying to get across in that blog is, well, it's, it's a funny thing. I, I basically go ahead and um, uh, have, like, Google blog, blog search set to go and give me all sorts of hits about unit testing. And so I get to see a lot of conversations about that topic. Right. And one thing that kind of, stri- one thing that kind of strikes me every once in a while is that people talk about uh, unit testing versus integration testing, and what's really important. I mean, isn't it better to go and have tests at a very high level in the application to see that all the pieces are tied together in a good way? And um, it took me a while to kind of see this, but um, I think that that really kind of rests on a bit of flawed reasoning in a sense. Um, a friend of mine, Steve Freeman, who was one of the guys who was um, uh, kind of instrumental in coming up with the idea of mock objects back in like 2000 or so, um, was talking to me a bit about a, a style of TDD that he'd done with um, some other friends. And they were basically going in, creating classes and mocking out all of the collaborators. And that was all the testing they were doing. They were basically going ahead and creating all these units and testing them to death and then just hooking them all together and things just ran and worked out fine. And I said, mm-hmm. well, you know, it's really kind of interesting that you can do that, but it's like, you know, what about the integration level? Don't you have lots of integration errors? And he said, well, not really. We didn't really have all that much in that, you know, that area. We had very, very high quality numbers. And um, when you think about that, there's something very strange about it. You know, why would testing the unit level basically go and make uh, a big difference at the higher levels of quality in a program? Yeah. And I think that what it comes down to is this, that when you are choosing the right test for something, you're thinking about it very deeply. You have to understand exactly how it operates, and you're learning how it operates. And um, chances are that as you go through that process, um, you'll avoid certain things and you'll think things through well enough that you um, arrive at um, higher quality without necessarily putting the bugs in in the first place. So it seems like there's this way that test-driven development and unit testing in general uh, kind of give us quality, but not through test failures. They give us quality by going and kind of forcing us to go and basically think through our code a bit deeper than we would otherwise. And... It's funny about this, though, because when you say this to people, the first thing they think is, oh, you know, that's great. All I have to do is basically go ahead and think about my code a bit more, and I've got all the high quality that anybody would ever want to have. Um, but I don't think it's quite that easy. I think that we need a bit of a crutch in a way um, to go and basically help us think through things and to kind of force us into different modes of thought. And beyond that, when you think about it, um, it's great that at the, end of, at the end of the process, you have all these tests you can just run for regression and um, use them to go and kind of uh, pin down the current behavior of the system. And um, know that when you make changes, you can find out quickly what's changed and what hasn't. So I, I think it's, it's funny. You'll, you'll see people quite often getting into this um, conversation about what level of testing do I need in my application. When I say level, I'm talking about what level in the architecture. Right. You know, what, yeah. what is the thing that I need do I to, to test at the high level or the low level? What's going to get me the quality numbers? And um, to me, I think it's really the process itself. The process of writing the test seems to be the point at which you have that deep yeah. thought. It's not running the tests. It's very much like um, the old design by contract stuff, right? You know? So you are going to write a class, and you come up with the you know the um, preconditions and the postconditions for every method that you write, and you know that process goes and forces you to think about things in a very different way. 
And um, so I think unit, tr- unit testing is, in a sense, a nice trick for us that way. That it really, mm-hmm. it really has that. It, the main thing is forcing the thought. But it's interesting to think that just because you have the tests doesn't mean you you have the thought. It was right. the creation of it that did the thinking for you. Yeah, and in fact, one of the things that I really hate, you know, every once in a while I visit a, um, a team and I hear them say that, well, you know, um, you know, the people we work for, they're basically saying that they want to go and raise the coverage numbers and say that, you know, by the end of two sprints, we're going to have our coverage up to, you know, 40%. It's only 30% now. Um, you can do that sort of thing, but the thing is that I think at the end, developers have to feel that unit testing is something that's there for them. And um, having an artificial goal to raise, raise coverage to a you know, particular number, um, quite often, even without you know, trying to gain things, uh, developers get into this situation where they write tests which are not quite as informative as they would be otherwise. They're just trying to reach the number. They're not trying to achieve a goal, which is really, I mean, isn't the goal really confidence? Yeah, the goal is confidence and really understanding what it is that you're doing. Um, so it's nice to, you know, whenever I'm working with teams, the first thing I try to do is get across is that, you know, this is for you. This is to, supposed to make your life easier as a developer. Yep. And if you don't look at it that way, you're just not going to get it. Well, and I like this description you've given of this whole, I'm looking forward to going into work today because I feel like I can write code successfully today. Yeah. yeah. And so many applications, the more code we have, the less able you are to do that. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly is a way to make your abilities scale. Definitely. So, agile development is this uh, has this worked out the way that we thought it would? Well, I think with everything else, it's, as with everything else, you people have very interesting ideas. They try them. They work, you know, with very high performers. They basically try to go and take the ideas and spread them out across, you know, uh, a team, a company, the industry. I, I think that the uptake of agile has been you know, very high, and it's actually led to some um, some nice successes. Um, there is a sense, though, that basically a lot of Agile has become a bit dilute in a way. Um, you know, there are some teams that I've seen that are just kind of like um, Agile in name only. Right. Um, but I, don't know, I have to kind of admit that it's better than what we've seen previously. Um, I think the only thing that really kind of gets me right now is that it seems like there's been a real moratorium on discussion of design. Um, in the industry over the past, oh, I guess, 10 years now. Um, there was a period of time when people were talking about the intricacies of object-oriented design and, and uh, you know, various things along those lines. And well, this, and this idea of... I, I don't disagree with you at all, Michael, here, that because it, I feel like people have stopped talking about this. But it's true. You know, Microsoft yeah. had that whole DNA model where you had the, the presentation layer separate from the uh, business object layer, separate from the data layer. And those mm-hmm. kinds of discussions, I just don't see them happening anymore. Well, people are... People are, are still gung-ho on the MVC idea. Yeah, they are. They are, and that's, that's nice. And it's also great, like Eric Evans' book, you know, Domain-Driven Design has been mm-hmm. very, very good and helpful yeah. and kind of you know, raising the profile of these discussions again. Um, but I think it's like anything else. That once you basically go ahead and say that, well, you know, design is going to emerge, then people sort of say, okay, well, we don't have to talk about that then. I, I agree. I think that most of the pundits are talking about Separation of concerns, and that's that's your mantra, and then everything else is left up to you. Yeah, yeah, I think we can have better discussions than that. Well, guys, because I, I do think we're falling over uh, at times. People are building these apps with separations of concern, and then not getting performance or not getting the distribution they want because they didn't really think through a design. I, I, I almost wonder: Are we missing the architects? Is, is architecture sort of been forgotten about? Um, I, you know, it's funny. I, I think that. Yeah, to a degree, yeah. It's, um, 
it's very kind of hard because there, there's been a lot of, that's happened with the nominal title of architect that's um, been not all that nice you know, over the past 20 years or so. Um, but also, the thing is that architectural expertise is definitely something which, um, you know, is, is necessary in many application domains. And is a different skill from development? It can be. Um, but, you know, we, we've also seen in the past where basically if you have architects that haven't, they don't basically get their hands dirty in the code, then they can start to, you know, offer advice which is a little bit, you know, a little bit off to the side of what is really necessary. Uh, it seems like they... Their view into the code has to be real in order to go and basically make good decisions sometimes also. So it's, it's funny. I, I think we're, there's a lot of blurring of the lines that's happened over the past 10 years or so, which I think is good and necessary. But the thing that we have to basically remember is that that expertise is still needed. Well, yeah, and at the same time, you, you think is, if this industry was really maturing, specific roles would tend to fall out. We'd unblur the line. The generalist becomes a less effective way. You need a specialist. But it, I don't know that we're actually getting there. Yeah, well, it's, it's a funny thing, because it's like when you look at that, you know, it's kind of, well, because there is the one extreme where basically you have someone who's an architect and they don't really any, know anything about code at all, right? Or they have their last, um, you know, uh, experience of code was 10 years ago. Right. And we know that that doesn't work. And, um, you know, now we have people that are working in teams, and, you know, some of them have very good architectural, you know, experience, and um, that can work out. I think the key thing is that, we just have to basically make sure that people do have that knowledge and that that knowledge is able to spread through teams uh, to the places where it needs to be. Um, I would hate to see us go back to the original extreme. And I, you know, that is a bit cartoonish, I guess. Right. Uh, but I have seen some strange things. Yeah, people do. So, uh, it's do it's strange one thing to have things. the goal, but the thing is that it has to be a very communicative role. Well, and there, this sort of ties back again to this whole legacy thing, which is, isn't our problem here just a lack of documentation? that we lose track of how this app was built and, and what we, why we did things? Yeah, well, you know, I've seen, I visit a lot of teams that have some documentation. They have a lot of documentation. It doesn't really germane to you know, the structure of what they've got. Um, I think the main thing is really continuity of knowledge in the team. And um, when you have that, everything works out okay. When you don't, you basically have this um, fishing expedition that you need to uh, go through every time you need to go make changes. Um, tests can help a great deal if the tests are written well and they um, communicate the functionality of the system. Uh, but, yeah, documentation, I mean, there, there's a place for some of it, but you definitely don't want to get into that state where, you know, you're producing um, exquisitely detailed documentation that uh, has to be modified every time that you modify the code. Right. Um, it gets a bit crazy. Well, it, it always ends up being wrong. I mean, that's the bigger thing is that in, then you don't, I mean, the reality is I've always found even when we had that documentation, the devs wouldn't read it. And when right. they did read well, it, the they, main they thing knew. they looked for was no, how it was wrong from what was actually in the code. Yeah. yeah. So, Michael, swinging back to your book a little bit uh, more, yeah. you talk about specific techniques for breaking dependencies. And I guess it's primarily to be able to get the tests in there. Yeah. Yeah. So what kind of techniques are we talking about? So, yeah, there's this one technique I use with Java code. Quite often, it's called introduce instance delegator, and the idea behind this is that you know you've got some code that you want to test, and it goes and ends up making some calls to some static methods on some other class, and you know that can be okay and everything, but if those static methods kind of hide some functionality that you don't want to have happen inside of your test, like maybe calls to a database or something along those lines, you're kind of stuck in a sense because you have static methods and you can't really override them. You can't really go in subclass and override them in any sense. Um, so introduce an instance delegator is really all about uh, going to that 
class that has static methods on it, creating virtual methods on it, right, and having those delegate over to the statics. And then you have to find some way to go and basically get an instance of that object into the code that you're going to be used to call those static methods. And you end up making your calls through the virtual methods rather than the static methods. So ah. you're slipping a shim in, essentially. Exactly. Yeah, and in fact, one of the concepts I, I discuss in the, um, uh, in the book is something I call a seam. It's kind of like, a, kind of like with a shirt, a seam between you know, the sleeve and the, and the body of the shirt. Right. Um, in programming languages, quite often we have these places where it's easy to replace one thing with another. Right. Not really editing the code in a pla- in that place, and um, we're not really. I think I don't think language designers are really conscious of this. Um, that these themes are there, and that they can be very useful in testing. Uh, but you know, one thing that's pretty clear is that static is not a not a theme really. Um, when you have static methods, quite often um, it's very hard to replace them in a testing situation. So, uh, and so just creating yeah. that point where you have the virtual method to the to the static method gives you that ability to to sneak in there. Yeah. Yeah, and the That's thing a good is, one. I, I tend to find over time that I, you know, I, I use static methods periodically, but just never really around anything I'd want to replace. And it's actually kind of nice to just basically keep things, you know, virtual also when you can. Um, right. It gives you a little more flexibility over time. Everything can be solved with one additional layer of interaction. Yeah, an old classic saying. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly for getting tests in, that's uh, one of the things we've got to do. But that, that's only one. Do you want to throw out a couple others? Uh, yeah, well, there's a couple that are very simple. One is extracting interfaces. You know, right. Uh, going to any particular class and choosing to extract an interface. Um, one thing that I find very powerful, though, is um, when you have some large class, I mean, a class that has more than five methods. I'm waiting for the laughter. Yeah, I'm thinking, that's, ah. that's large, huh? <laughs> Five. Mm. Yeah. Now, classes that have 50, 20, 70, no, 50, 70, you know, 80 methods. Yeah. Um, it's really kind of hard to get a handle on code that has that kind of, you know, uh, uh, bulk. Yeah. Um, one thing that can help sometimes is to go and just create an interface and make the class implement that interface and just keep the interface empty. Okay. Then you go to some place in your code where you instantiate that class and you basically go ahead and create a, um, a reference to the interface. And you assign the instance of your object to that interface. And once you do, your ID is going to tell you all this, you know, give you all these error messages saying, oh, you've got this reference to such and such, and it doesn't have this method, and it doesn't have this method, and it doesn't have this method. And if you basically hunt down through all those errors, you're basically given a list of all the things that are used in that context. Right. You start to go and pull the signatures over into that interface. Ah, and, so, you're, so you're using error messages to generate an inventory of utilization. Yeah, cool. yeah, and when you think about it, the one thing that people don't really appreciate sometimes is the notion that, you know, really your compiler is a test also. Yeah, a good it gives one. You this, you know, this feedback. And, um, you know, the cool thing about using this technique is that if you have one of these very big, bulky classes, um, you can do this and start to get a, an inventory of what methods are being used in some particular context. And, of course, once you get that nailed down, you can go and give that interface a good name and, start to go and increase the net understandability of the code that you're working in. And um, often that's a great first step for going and um, sure is. kind of recover an architecture and figure out where you want to go next. Very cool. That's a, yeah, definitely a clever technique. Yeah, but, and I've heard that line before, that the, the compiler is one of the best test tools you could possibly have. Yeah. Yeah. Just we don't tend to think of it that way. It's almost like we're embarrassed when it doesn't. We, there's so much energy has been put around breaking the build yeah, or right. failing compilation. Yeah, and not only that, just the notion of kind of introducing errors just to figure out where to make a change in your code feels a little bit hokey in a way. Debug dot assert. Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
I have fallen into this trap too, which is I'm writing some code where I want to bury an exception. You know, if an ex- like I'm closing a socket, for example, yeah. I don't care if it throws an exception because if it's already closed, fine. I don't care. I just want to close it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm not going to get an exception because uh, it was open and I couldn't close it. You know, right. so I would, you know, I've fallen into the trap of just burying it right there and then uh, before I test anything. And of course, you want to leave all those. You want to leave all those things uh, in place while you're while you're testing, so you know that you've written some good code. So I, I go back. So so now when I'm writing code, um, I'll always leave the 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 try catches in there and do a debug assert or something like that until I'm satisfied that I have a a case that works as expected. Yeah. Then I'll go back and handle those however I want to. Yeah, I think a lot of times developers have this. You know, they don't like to write code temporarily you know, while right. they're yeah. working on something. And yeah. it's very powerful to go and just put something in temporarily just to go and get a sense of yep. well, and it. Yeah, this whole idea, there's a couple of things we've talked about over the course of this hour where you've really gotten into this idea of messing with code that ultimately you know you'll throw away. Yeah. yeah. That, that just It's interesting how we have this culture that says, if it comes from my fingers, it must be gospel. We must keep it. Yeah. Well, you know, I think a lot of it is just really just a run-on effect of fear. You know, if you basically have this experience where every time you change code, something terrible happens, or every time your coworkers change code, something terrible happens, mm-hmm. you're going to be extremely deliberative about any change that you make. Yeah. Um, and for good reason. Uh, but if you're able to kind of back off and say, wait, you know, I don't have to check this in right away. Uh, or ever. Try this out and see what happens. Or ever, right. And try this out and see what happens. You know, you start to you know, get past the, um, you get past the stasis. Also, you've had the situation where there's an environment of, in the office of non-cooperation so that you've got, uh, you know, people vying for other people's jobs. And so everybody's trying to look like they're the smartest developer in the room. And, you know, oh, my God, if you, if you, you have code that breaks, well, you know. <laughs> well, you know, it's a funny thing about this. I really feel that, you know, if you've heard like Conway's Law, basically the notion that um, – Every system's architecture is doomed to duplicate the structure of the team that produced it. Ooh, interesting. Nice. Yeah, yeah. A guy named Conway who basically came up with this in the 1970s. Conway, what a genius you are. <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah, there's just uh, so much that kind of falls out of that. I mean, it, it's really funny when you see a lot of code that's really crazy and, and, uh, and odd. Um, I think sometimes it says a bit about the team that produced it. You know, and I mean... We can look at these things as being like an individual sport in a sense, but um, it does seem that, you know, if you want to produce code and it's really a multi-person effort, those people need to get along with each other in order to go actually produce good code. Yeah. And otherwise, you have people sabotaging or, you know, uh, just, you know, just by not lending help you know, in certain situations. There's, right. There's so much truth to, to Conway's law here that uh, I'm just, I've been spending the last couple of minutes distracted thinking about that. <laughs> yeah. There's so much deeper stuff there. There really is. There really is. Yeah, I know, it just has possibility. You know, we find that over and over again. This is how that whole, you know, rising to your own level of incompetence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yep. That, it's inevitably. Oh, here he is. Melvin Conway in 1968. Wow. Earlier than I thought. Wow, that is old. Yeah. But, uh, no, there's a lot that... Yeah, that kind of falls back into. Yeah. Uh, organizations which design systems are constrained to produce designs which are copies of the communication structures of these organizations. Wow. Yeah. 
Wow. You know, it's, a, it's a funny thing about this now that I'm, I'm thinking about, and it's, it's really, it has to do with this notion of emergent design and everything. And I've seen emergent design work very well, but um, one thing that's really troubling me sometimes is in very large organizations, sometimes you have extremely large code base, and um, you have teams that are working in little pieces of it and then moving on, working in little pieces of it and moving on. And right. the original idea in Agile was to go and have collective code ownership, which is good. But the thing is, it's like when you think about that and you kind of start to run it through the veil of Conway's Law, you know, that's really a, an, uh, it's really, you're really arriving at that point at something which is more like no ownership, in a way. And you end up with this really odd tragedy of the commons. Um, yes. So I think that's something we really have to go and deal with in large organizations, the notion that you do really need to have some ownership. And if you don't, you know, you shouldn't be surprised at what you get. Yeah, no kidding. Well, the, the, there's a variation on Conway's law that says in every organization there is one person that knows exactly what is going on at all times. This person must be fired. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, Richard, in most cases, that person is you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Not with us. I mean, you know, in your history of uh, projects that you've dealt with, you're the guy who knows where everything is going on and who's yeah. messing up. Yeah. And eventually I got to go. Eventually it's your turn. <laughs> yeah. It's very funny. Yeah. Michael, I, I think we're getting close to the end of the show here. Okay. Any sort of final thoughts? Um, yeah, Shout I outs. guess the, the main thing is, you know, I, I know you had Bob Martin on a bit earlier and he talked about um, clean code and really that's the answer with all this. You know, yeah. Just, I spend a lot of time going around and visiting teams that have already gotten themselves in quite a bit of trouble and, you know, escaping that, there are things you can do to go make things a bit better, but, you know, it's best not to get into that um, situation in the first place. Um, it's I not agree. a nice place to be. But the overlay on all this is this testing angle. Are, are, are you willing to go so far as to say that with great testing infrastructure, we don't have legacy code anymore? No, because the thing is, there's always a way to screw things up. <laughs> yeah, this is really, that's true. No, but this is, you know, this is something which is really a great precondition in a way. Um, it's a, a great tool to go and basically arrive at better code. And um, you know, I just really, I, I know of all people that I meet developing, I have the most respect for people who have been kind of through that. They've kind of noticed that they've followed up things in various different ways, and they discover it's like, you know, gee, if I just write some tests for what I'm working on, um, and start to notice how that resonates with their work. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really a powerful thing, and I, I notice that people who get that epiphany uh, tend to do much better overall. Awesome. All right. Michael Feathers, thank you very much for joining us. Okay, well, thank you very much. And uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks. And we'll see you next time on Dr. Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 